0: Hi, it's good to see you. Um, I am uh, yeah, wow. There's like four people. <laughs> good, yes. Yeah, see, see, you can clap. Um, for those of you who are new, my name is is Jeff uh, Bucknam. I'm the lead teaching pastor here. And guys, I've missed Rolling Meadows on Sunday morning. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> But you guys are great, and I was just before the service. I was walking around out in the hall, on the hallway, just meeting lots of different people, and I met some people from Romania. God bless these folks here from Romania, uh, Puerto Rico, Oregon, which is same, right? (laughs) Um, I I met people from India, Africa. Man, it was so cool. What a cool church, right? It's so fantastic. We are all here together under one banner of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that you need to know before I get going, and they're all telling me, hurry up, preach the sermon, Um, the Redeemer City to City is an amazing ministry. In the past, Harvest used to uh, plant churches through the Harvest Bible Fellowship, which was very focused on the Harvest training everybody from within our walls and going out there. We want to reinvigorate some of that sort of thing, but this time around we, we've decided to do it uh, in partnership with some other churches and other ministries who already have their feet in places around the world that just need gospel churches. And so uh, that's why we're trying to get together with Chicago Partnership, which are planting churches a lot in the urban city, and the urban setting here in Chicago, and why we're trying to get involved with uh, Redeemer City to City is because we just believe that, look, uh, the best way to have more and better disciples is to train more and better leaders to plant more and better churches. And so this is our approach to, to doing the Great Commission, is through church planting, leadership development, and all this sort of thing. Listen, if you have any questions about this, you can always talk, pull pull me aside, pull somebody aside. I'd love to talk about all of this sort of thing. You'll hear more about it in the days to come. Right? You're going to need a Bible. You're going to need to turn it to First Corinthians uh, chapter three, verse eighteen. I was trained as a um, I was trained in seminary as a teacher. Actually, I was going to be in academic ministries. I thought. Uh, I was involved in the church for a little while as a youth pastor, and I didn't like the politics of the local church, and so when I went to seminaries, like, man, I don't want to be involved in politics at all, so I'm going to be trained to teach at a school because schools never have politics. Um, and then I got to the school, and I was part of an academic committee that was like all politics, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is terrible. I would much rather be a part of a church where I can teach and preach and engage with people uh, just everyday people, people who are electricians, people who are, you know, doctors, lawyers, whatever, without having them have to come to school and all those sorts of things. And so I ended up, Lord, by his kind providence, led me back into the local church. But I still remember those days of teaching in, in classrooms. Um, you guys remember, of course, being in school, many of you, uh, you know, you, you're going to sit for an hour and a half lecture or something like that. You're usually not going to pay attention the whole time. And as a teacher, you'd see certain students, you know, they have their, you know, put their hand on their head to pretend that they're focused, but they're actually sleeping away there. But there is a phrase that you can use as a teacher to wake every last person in the room up, okay? Ready? For those of you who teach, here it is. Uh, This is going to be on the test. (laughs) And they perk right up. Woo! And they pull out their pens, and they're like, oh, okay, so tell me what, what it is. I mean, of course. And that makes sense, because uh, you're going to get into a lot of minutia when you teach a class, but the students, they might be interested in some of the minutia, but most of the part, for the most part, what they're really interested in is, like, what, am, what, am I gonna, what do I need to know? What are the basic things, the fundamental things that I need to know in order to pass this class so that I can get the little piece of paper that says I'm smart? I w- that's what I want to know. And so if you're, as a, as a teacher, the more merciful you are, the more often you end up putting uh, a class before the test that is just test prep class. And that's the class that you should come to every student. If you're a student here, just take my advice. That's what you come to because that's where you are going to get the summary of everything that was taught. The teacher is actually handing you what the big rocks are in his class or her class, right? What you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, is basically that class from the Apostle Paul. He's like, I listen, I've gone through a whole bunch of stuff. I've been talking about the problems of division that are happening in the Corinthian church, but I know some of you guys have stopped paying attention and you're a hand on your head and you're a... and so here's my part. Paul's basically saying, Okay, this is gonna be on the test. These are the things that you need to know. He finishes this whole discussion with two imperatives, two commands. Number one, let no one deceive himself. And number two, let no one boast in men. So those are the two big things that you need to know. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one boast in men. Now you're listening to that and you're going, I don't know what that means. Cool. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take each one of those in turn. And I'm going to explain to you what exactly he means by those phrases, so here's the first one: Let no one deceive himself. Verse 18 of First Corinthians chapter 3. There it is: Let no one deceive himself. That's a word "deceive" that's used actually for. Remember when uh, Eve was in the garden, and the serpent deceived Eve. You know, he 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 twisted the truth in some direction. There's a little bit of truth in there, but he twisted the truth and enough enough so that she would end up buying into into it that's how you that's how you get deceived in that case somebody else was deceiving her but in this case Paul's like listen you don't deceive yourself don't don't lie to yourself so in your mind you need to be thinking yourself about what like what what do I lie about what do I deceive myself about well okay you go back a couple of verses Do you not know, this is the end of the last section. Do you not know, says the Apostle Paul. By the way, this you is a y'all. I keep telling people that. We need a better word in English for you to show that it's plural. Don't you think y'all is the best one? I mean, people here, we're like, you guys. No, y'all is way better. Do y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit uh, dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I wonder what image he's drawing on to try to convince us of what he's saying. Look, there it is, right? Look, guys, you need to know that you, the church of Jesus Christ, is the temple of God. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the temple was built and the Spirit of God came and dwelled in the middle of the temple, right? And sat on the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the middle of the Holy of Holies and nobody could go in there except the high priest. Because God's not going to be approached just willy-nilly. He's got to be, the person's got to be holy. There's only certain certain people who can go in there. That's the temple. But in the New Testament, people like us, what Paul's saying is, look, that's not... That's not what the temple is. A church is not a building in, in, in the sense that it's brick and mortar. The church is the building of Christ in the sense that we are the, the body in which the Spirit of God dwells. Now, in, in Corinth, one of the things you need to know is that it was a really, really religious city. Uh, it Crossroads of major trade routes and, you know, this day and age, if if you stop at the truck stop or whatever, uh, there's lots of different things for truckers to do in that particular area. Uh, that's you know pastimes and things. In those times, everybody was religious. So if you were going to have a, a, you know crossroads of major roads, and it was you'd have a lot of banking and you'd have a lot of pastime stuff but because everybody was religious the pastime stuff would usually require worship to a particular god and so if you're any kind of religion at all you would end up putting your temples to those gods at the crossroads of major roads major waterways so that when the sailors and the truckers and everybody stopped, they didn't have truckers okay but when they stop When they stop, they can go and worship at the temples. And so if you walked through Corinth, what you would have seen is temple on each high place, on each hill. Temple, 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 temple. Now if you walked into one of those temples, you know, the worship to whatever God is there, Artemis in the city of Ephesus, for example, you walk into that temple, everything in that temple will give an indication of the God who's worshiped there, yes? Like some of you have been in temples before in other parts of the world. And you walk in there and you're like, oh, this God is this particular God because look at all the stuff that they, ha- that they have here. There's a rat temple in parts of the world and there's rats everywhere. You can't kill the rats and things. And you're like, oh, this is, I don't know if we want to worship this God. There are, the idea is that the temple gives, gives an indication of the kind of God who's worshiped there. So what he, Paul's doing here is he's saying, listen, you guys are, you guys are the temple of God. You're not one that's sitting on the hill and has bricks and mortar. You're the temple of God in which the Spirit dwells. When people rub shoulders with you, the temple, they should get an indication of what kind of God you serve. So what kind of God do they think you serve? When they rub shoulders with you, Christian, What kind of God do they think you serve? Um, That kind of God, a holy God? Or not? And Paul's livid with these folks, basically, because he's saying, look, your divisions are communicating something to everybody else. When they walk into the temple of God, which is you guys, what they're seeing is not a God who is a God of peace, a God of unity, They're seeing, oh, this God just like, he he doesn't offer really anything to the world because essentially they do inside the church what they do outside the church. I'm not coming. God takes that very seriously because, you know, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will um, destroy him. So, back to our passage. Let no one deceive himself. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Uh, Listen, Don't deceive yourself by by thinking that uh, you are on God's good side if you're somehow part of the temple of God, part of the Christian faith, and yet living like you're not a Christian. Don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself and somehow think, yeah, yeah, I'm cool with God. It's cool. If you're giving off a message to the rest of the world when you rub shoulders to them that Christians are, what, divisive, that Christians are hateful, that Christians are whatever, whatever. And it's not in line with the way that God talks in His Word, don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age... This age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So here's the interesting bit now. And remember what I told you a minute, a few minutes ago that uh, when you do a summary you know, class before the test, there's repetition, right? You've some, you should have heard some of this before if you were, not, you were awake at any point in the class. So here's a little bit of repetition. Some of you will be like, hey, he drew this before. And I will draw it again. But here, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that there are two ages. There is an age to come. Heaven, the new heavens and new earth. There is an age that's passing away. Uh, It is called the present evil age. P for sure. (laughs) The present evil age. There are two ages. You say, well... When did, when did one, be, why, why is one ending and the other one starting? When did that happen? Well, when Jesus came, he inaugurated the age to come in the present evil age, and when he comes again, he will complete the age that is the present evil one, and he we will be in completely the age to come. Follow now. Paul's argument is you are citizens of the age to come, Living in this overlap where you're also living in places that value the present evil age. So when someone gets baptized, they are being transferred from the present evil age. Their citizenship is being removed from there and being placed in the age to come so that now when they live in the present evil age in this area, they are aliens and strangers to use the language that Peter uses. They're just, they're a little weird, right? They're they're a little bit different. So you get this language in other places in the New Testament that's really helpful. Do not be conformed. This is uh, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed, says the Apostle Paul, to this world. This word actually in Greek in this context is age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right? Because... You used to live in the age that's passing away, and everything that you did was defined by the wisdom of that age. But now that you come to faith in Christ, what do you need? You need a renewal of your mind. You need to think differently about who you are. You are no longer driven by the wisdom of the age that's passing away. You are now driven by the wisdom of the age to come. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. It was good and acceptable and perfect because you didn't know what that was when you were in the age that was passing away. But the more time you spend with people in the age to come, the more time that you spend in church and the word of God, your mind gets renewed so that you start thinking differently about who you are and what God values and how you're going to live. Yes? Because you're a citizen of the age to come living as an alien now in the present evil age. And this is why Paul then will say, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this present evil age, like it, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Let him become somebody who is looked upon by the present evil age like they're foolish because they're living according to the values of a different kingdom, of a different age. Here's the point. We will either be wise in God's eyes and fools in the world's eyes, or wise in the world's eyes and fools in God's eyes. But you will not be both. To be both is to lie to yourself. Say it again. We will either be wise in God's eyes and fools in the world's eyes, or wise in the world's eyes and fools in God's eyes, but you will not be both unless you want to lie to yourself. So choose the wisdom that reflects your citizenship. Live like a citizen of the age. To come, and you know, you know that if you live like a different kind of citizen in a in, a, in another place, people are going to think you're weird. going not think you weird. Um, lots of years ago, I first went to New Zealand, w- lived there for seven years. But first time I ever went there was w- as, for a for a, an internship that I had to do for ten weeks over the over our summer, their winter. Went down there with my friend. Uh, We stayed with them for a number of weeks. Um, Here's something you need to know about New Zealand homes. They don't believe in heat. They they think that it's tropical. It's not tropical. There's big parts of it that are not tropical at all. It's like San Francisco, which is not tropical. And so they often don't have heat in there. Sometimes they don't have any heat sources in their homes at all except the oven. They might get something put in the wall like a heat pump now, but back in those days, you, just, you had a fireplace or you had a coil, a little coil heater that you could roll out into different places and you'd huddle around it because they didn't put any insulation in any of the walls and you'd just shiver all the time. Usually there's a door, what they call the lounge, which is the main the main room, and there's a door that closes and that's the only room you heat. So when it's time to go to bed, here's what you do about... 30 minutes before you go to bed, you get a hot water bottle. Remember those? They're from the 1940s. So you get a hot water bottle, you fill this hot water bottle up, and then you walk it down the hallway and you shove it inside your bed. Because the bed, the bed is like Chicago in February, right? But the hot water bottle makes it, like, tolerable. Then when it's time for bed, you go from the warm room and you walk as quickly as you can down the hallway... Brush your teeth as fast as you can. Get into the bed and shiver forever. (laughs) Okay, this this is crazy. So finally, my wife and I are given this house that we can can actually stay in. And when we get into this place, uh, our friends drop us off and say, hey, we'll be back in a couple hours. Took you up for dinner. Oh, sweet. So we, we sit down in this house, and the first thing I do as I go to the, the the wall has this little mini heater in it, and I turn that sucker up as hard to the sun level, right? And it starts blowing this heat. After a little while, the room that we're in, honestly, it's like 95 degrees. It was so hot. I had shirt off, right? Just in my shorts, just laying there going, oh, finally. Our friends knock at the door. They open the, we open the door, and this, like, the blast of the, the nuclear blast hits them. Woof. And they're like, oh, so stuffy in here. I said, no, that's warm. That's heat. Okay? <laughs> you call that stuff. It's not stuffy. That's actually heat. They're like, oh, my goodness. You guys are crazy. What are you doing? Doing that. And I'm like, no, no. No, no, no. You understand. You see me as a fool. I get that. You see me as a fool. But I come from the age to come, brother. Where we have heat. They, they, they don't dry their stuff in a dryer. It's like, well, we don't know what this dryer is for. We're going to hang it out here to dry. I come from the age to come. We have dryers. Use that. But they think you're crazy. Of course they are. But listen, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm living according to my citizenship. Man, I'm an American. I dry stuff, I like heat. I was in uh, North Carolina. <laughs> I was in North Carolina a few years ago, and uh, you know I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and so we we recycle everything. Like you can recycle it. We have to separate our trash out. It's all sorts of things, and sometimes you stand at the trash thing, and they have different options. You know, compost and not compost, and biodegradable, compostable, non-compost, and then the last one's like trash. And you're like standing there with your tray, and you're like, I I don't know where these go, and then you look around, you put it all in the trash, right? <laughs> but I, for something inside of me teaches me that I cannot, if I have, uh, you know, plastic water bottles, I, I just can't throw them away. So I'm in North Carolina, I've been drinking all sorts of stuff there, and so I pull, pick all the stuff out of the car, and I walk into, into this store, i got my arms full of water bottles, and I said, so where's the, do you have a recycle bin? And the lady said, what? And I said, a recycle bin. And she goes, honey, we don't do that here. And and I said, you don't? She said, no. Well, what do I do with them? You just throw them in the trash. So every part inside of me, you know, my Seattle heart is starting to shake. You know, because, you know, there's murder and then there's not recycling. Right? You know, right? (laughs) So I'm shaking with these stupid water bottles in my arm. And so all the rest of the day, I'm going, every time I stop in the car, I'm picking the water bottles up and asking this. I'm walking around the towns in North Carolina with like five plastic water bottles, refusing to throw them in the trash. And people walk by and they're like, he's a little bit weird. No, I'm not a little weird. I come from the age to come where we recycle stuff. But listen, that's... that's I live that way because I'm from the Pacific Northwest and I live that way because, you know, I'm from the United States and not New Zealand. You see, I'm living in light of the citizenship that I, that I have. I'm living in light of who I actually am. And Paul, this is Paul's point. Live in light of the citizenship you have. You have to choose a wisdom. You're either going to choose the wisdom of the world or you're going to choose the wisdom of the age to come. Which shall it be? But don't fool yourself to think that you're somehow. I'm going to do both. No, you're not. Either you're a citizen of the kingdom, or you're a citizen of the world. No havesies. So which are you? All right. Because I like to get pointed and irritate people, I'm going to give you some actual illustrations of I think how this plays out in everyday life. So here, um, we lie to ourselves when we think the wise thing to do is what the world does. The wisdom of God is folly to the world, and the wisdom of the world is folly to God. So choose the right wisdom regarding your money, one. Um, I did a series of sermons a number of years ago called Bling. It was just a bunch of sermons about the the Bible talks a lot about money, especially the Gospel of Luke talks a lot about money. Jesus loves to talk about money, and so I just did a bunch of ser- sermons about that subject from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, after a while, people <laughs> were getting a little antsy because they were like, "Man, so much of what the Bible teaches about money is so countercultural, so different than what the way that we approach it." Um, this one guy, I, I preached a sermon on what the passage called Luke 12 about the rich, he, the rich fool. It's a guy who has a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of crops, and he says one day, I don't know what to do with all these crops. I probably, sh-, he should leave them out for what they call the gleaners, the guys that come through and the poor people can just pick the extras off of his field. That was God's way of taking care of him. It was like an early welfare system. But he says, look, I've got all these extra crops. What should I do with them? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, be, I'll build bigger barns, so that I can sit back on my porch with my lemonade, eat, drink and be merry, and my, whole, my soul will be taken care of the rest of my days. And so he does this. It's like the perfect retirement commercial, right? When you've made a lot, give it to yourself and then let it invest, and then later on you can go to the beach. It's always on the beach, you know, and you're sitting there and you have two tubs or whatever. Anyway. So this is, the, this is the retirement. So one of these guys, he's, a, he's actually a financial advisor. He came up to me after the service, and he said, I'm not really sure what to do with this passage. He says, because when I, when I read it, it sure seems to be challenging the very things I tell people all the time about, about saving for their... And I said, well, no, I think that there's you know, there's wisdom in saving and things like that. But I said, isn't there too much? And he goes, I don't know. I don't think there is too much because, you know, it's going to cost this, 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 and when you're in the future, and who knows what's going to happen in the future, and you need to have a certain much amount to live. And, I, and I, I said to him, okay, yeah, that's totally the way the world really views this. I get it. The way you, you view money is, you know, uh, get all you can and can all you get and then sit on the can. I get it. That's the approach that we take. And we treat it like it's a it's a competition, the more you have, and he who dies with most toys wins, all of that stuff. And you were reminded all the time on TV that the more you you need more, you need more in order both to be happy now and to take care of yourself in the future. Got it. You can choose that wisdom, like most people do. The whole world says that's the wisdom to choose. Or, or you could choose this wisdom. The end of that passage in Luke 12. You have the rich fool. Immediately, God comes to him and says, Yeah, your life is going to be required of you tonight, you stupid rich fool. Then who's then whose is going to be what you've what you've collected for yourself? And what good is that going to do for you in the kingdom? And he lets it sit there, and then Jesus comes immediately on the heels of it and he says, Yeah, but don't worry, because that's the reason you want to save all the stuff and hoard the wealth is because you're worried that one day God won't come through for you. So he says, don't worry about what you should eat or wear, you know, the sparrows and the, and the lilies of the field and yada, yada, and then at the end in verse 29, and don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Yeah, it's like the way that they think about it, this world. They seek after these things. They strive after all of them. And your father, he knows that you need them. So instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You see, the difference is you, you can either choose to be rich toward the world and yourself or rich toward God. You can either operate according to the wisdom of this age that everyone tells you is the right way to think. Hoard, hoard, hoard. Or you can operate according to the wisdom of the age to come that says, be generous, sacrificially so, and trust the Lord for the days ahead. So which will it be? O citizens of the age to come, which will it be? Okay. Okay. Uh, Choose the right wisdom regarding celebrity. This is what we've been talking about for the last little while. You know, I was at a church a little while ago that had a section in the big church. It had a section right in the middle of their auditorium that said, (laughs) VIPs only, right? VIPs only. If you came to the door and you were like Justin Bieber, or if you came to the door and you were, I don't know, whoever, uh, really big big deal. Justin Bieber's like the biggest deal for me, so that's why I mentioned them, right? So <laughs> I'm Canadian. So if somebody comes to the door and they're a really big deal, um, well, they, they hold them by the hand and they walk forward and they put them in the little section. VIPs, right? If you're one of the big donors, right? You give a lot of money to the church. Hey, come forward. Come, 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 come we got a spot right here for you. we got a spot right here, right here, in the sense, roped off, right? And after the service, after the service, I'm the pastor, I'll come down and talk to you, you know what I mean? Just you and me, just you and me. So you get in your VIP section and stuff, and I'll tell you right now, if you go talk to fundraising experts, they would tell you this is a great way to raise money. Seek out the donors, seek out the important people, seek out all of those people who have influence, Give them special treatment, and then everybody else will fall in line. That's how you raise money. That's how you grow an important and influential ministry. That's what, that's what everyone tells you. It's the wisdom of the world. Of course it is. And you can follow it. Some churches do. Or um, you could read James. James 2. Uh, my brothers show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, Gucci, 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 and he comes into your assembly, right, he comes to the door, and a poor man in shabby clothing, think John Smith here, right, right? (laughs) Seriously, does this guy own a tie? All right. All right. Poor man in shabby clothing comes in, John's coming, he comes to the door, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, uh, you sit here in a good place, I've got a spot for you right in the middle, you can meet me after the service, and can shake hands and give you my cell phone number, <laughs> while you say to John, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, nah, we don't have a chair for you, man, the floor is great, you can sit right here. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with uh, evil thoughts? Okay, so you've got a choice to make. Either you can obey the wisdom of the world that says that fundraising happens best when you give special, special and preferential treatment to the rich and important, or you can operate according to the wisdom of the age to come, God's own wisdom that says, now, nah, everybody is equal in Christ. So which will it be? Oh, citizens of the age to come. Oh, I'm not done. Uh, What what, what about the way we think about uh, sex? So I knew a girl uh, a number of years ago, a good friend of my wife's, and uh, she was from Austria. And we were talking one day about the kinds of things that youth in Austria, when she was young, uh, used to think about you know, sexual activity, and she, she was saying, you know, my youth group, everyone slept with everyone. And I was like, what? She, she said, yeah, like, everyone kind of thought, look, why in the world would I, why in the world would I, you know, buy the car without taking the test drive? Because like, you know what, you, sexual incompatibility, she said, is a big thing. So why would you take that risk of sexual incompatibility well, instead, what you should do is you should try it on for size, you know, figure out if you guys work that way, and it's like, and, and she said, seriously, there's nobody in my culture in Austria, in Europe, that would think differently. Everyone would be like, no, that's exactly how you do. You cohabit, and then you get, then, then you get married, maybe, maybe. That's the wisdom. That's the way you do it. Those are the definitions of sex in our culture at large. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. And you can live according to them. I be honest with you, a lot of people who are in churches and Christians live according to all the time. And out, People outside the church are like, you guys are so obsessed with sex. We are? Or, um, oops, or you could do this. You could let marriage be held in honor among all. That's not just the people who are uh, married. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. for God will judge both the adultery. See the married people who are sleeping with each other, and the sexually immoral, the people who aren't married who are sleeping with each other. God's going to judge both of those. In other words, God made you. He made you a sexual being, and He knows the operating instructions that will bring you most: joy, happiness, life and good operation. So you can listen to the one who made you, the wisdom that comes from the age to come, or you can just listen to everyone around around you. So which will be? O oh, citizens of the age to come. Ooh, one more. So um So you know how how sometimes people really tick us off. I can't stand that person. They did this horrible, horrible act to me. I don't know what it was. Maybe you lost money in a deal, a business deal, or maybe you just, you know, had a big fight with them, or maybe they stole your boyfriend, something bad. Somebody did a really heinous act to you, and you're so irritated and upset by it, you can't let it go. You're so mad. And listen, the, the whole world at that point would, would be like, look, nobody's going to stand up for yourself, for you, except you. So if someone's stepping on you, you step back. That's why we like all the movies, guys, that end with bloodshed and the, the single guy standing on top of the hill of dead bodies with his gun, and we're like, yes. Yes. Because we want the justice, and in our hearts there's this, yes, justice. And so when someone says wrong to us, we're like, yeah, justice should be done to them. And I'm the person to do it. Sword of the Lord. We want to avenge ourselves, in other words. And so you have your rage fantasies while you're walking behind the the, the, the uh, lawnmower or snowblower or whatever it is, and you're like, man, oh a person I would have thought, to oh, this is what I should have said. And then you've got a list of things that you have done, and you've got five, six, seven of these rage fantasies. They just come on you from time to time. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> and the world would tell you, yeah, totally, you should get revenge. You should do whatever you can. You got money, you got lawyers, you got whatever. You should totally get revenge on those people. Or... Uh, you could read Romans 12:19 which says beloved o, o christian people never avenge yourselves but see you can leave it to the to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord so you can You can leave it. See, you have an option in that moment when you're thinking about getting revenge and plotting your vengeance. You can stop and think to yourself: It doesn't matter how much vengeance I get on this person; it will probably not satisfy me. And when I'm seeking the vengeance, I'm either going to go too far or not far enough. So here's what instead I can do: It's driving me crazy and ripping me up inside. So I can take all of that, lift it up, and say, "This is above my pay grade." So here, Lord. I know that you're just and righteous, and you, every single person will answer for what they've done perfectly. And so I'm going to lift this up and leave it with the judge of all the world who does what's right. You got two wisdoms you get to choose here, right? So which will it be, O citizen of the age to come? Which wisdom am I reflecting in my decisions and actions? That's what I'm asking you to to, to ask yourself. Which wisdom am I reflecting in my decisions and actions? Is it wisdom from God or is it wisdom of the world? Don't deceive yourself. God's people are marked by a commitment to God's wisdom. That was the one command... You guys are like, okay, that's enough of a sermon. Can we stop now? No, I have another one. Okay. No, but you're going to love this next one. It's going to be good. I promise. It's better. Not as convicting. I promise. Okay. Okay. So remember I said that there's two commands. The first one is let no one deceive himself. And the second is let no one boast in men. And you get the, oops, you get that line from here. So let no one boast in men. This is what they're talking about, right? Paul's been talking about that the whole time. You guys make parties between yourself, and you said, Paul is my guy, and Apollos is my guy, and Cephas is my guy, and then you follow them, and you serve them, and you say, because I'm part of the Cephas party, he's better than everyone else. Here are his stats. This is why you should be in the Hall of Fame, and your guy sucks. So let no one boast in men. That's, That's what he's saying. Look, I've been going through this whole thing for you guys to stop acting in this divisive party spirit. But listen to why he says it. Let no one boast in men for all things are yours. Um, what do you mean all things? Uh, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, present, future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Well, I don't understand what you're talking about, Paul. Okay, so let me d- diagram it. Um, all things, and you just read what they were, right? Present, future, life, death, the world. The world is the, uh, it, it is the enemy of God. It's the way of thinking in the world. It's the present evil age that fights back against God. He's saying, no, that's yours too. That's yours too. In this sense, it serves you. All things are yours. Okay, that's us. And we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. From this direction to that direction, these on the bottom serve the, the ones on the top. So here's what the, here's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, oh, actually, my job as a Christian is to serve the leader, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I serve them. And yet Paul's like, you got it flat backwards. Actually they serve you. Paul, Apollos, the world, the evil, present, future, life, death, all of those things serve you in the sense that what they do is that God Himself uses all of it for your good, His glory to fulfill his promises for you. So there's nothing that will happen in the world to a Christian that God isn't in. He's taking all of that, working it all together for your good. All things are yours. All things serve you. Just just like you serve Christ and Christ serves God, everything serves you. Corinthians added backwards, they didn't serve one another, leaders served them. In fact, all things ultimately serve their eternal interests. There's a stupid scene in a movie called Trading Places, which I'm not recommending, because anyway, but it's this movie, Eddie Murphy, for years ago. Anyway, he's this, he's this very poor guy, and a couple of rich guys decide they're going to do an experiment with him and say, if we bring this poor guy into this rich house and give him everything, he's probably going to act snobby and look down at everybody too. So let's figure out if that happens so they gather this guy they put him in his house and they give him everything they give him the house they give him everything and he's a scene where he's walking around the house and he's saying so all this is mine all of this is mine and the two guys are like yeah it's all yours and he's like mm, even that painting over there and when they turn to the painting he grabs like the gold thing and puts it in his coat right and they're they're like no no you don't need to steal because it's all yours. Oh, is all of this is mine, like the outside, that car. And they turn around and he grabs something out pushes pushes the coat. Because he's, he's like, no, obviously not all these things are, are mine. And they go over and they grab the things out and they say, listen, it's all yours. This is Paul's point. It is all yours. You're so focused on little, petty, small things. And yet the whole world belongs to you. Guys, you have... You have to realize who you are and what you really possess due to your union with Christ. You have to realize who you really are as a citizen of the age to come. Uh, the best way I can do it is to try to just walk through a couple texts really quickly as we finish. Um, the Spirit, Romans 8, himself bears witness what our spirit that we, we are children of God. And if children, then we're, we're heirs, right? That's how it works. Jeff Bezos, if he adopted you tomorrow, may it be, right? <laughs> that he adopted you tomorrow and you, you were there and he said, he said, oh, yeah, you're And he gets sick and then he cacks right there. I mean, he's dead. You're going to go to the lawyer's meeting and the lawyer's going to be like, well, you know, you're his family. You're his child and therefore you inherit everything he has. And he has a lot. Like he has a lot. That's how it works. If you're children, then you're heirs. But you're not just children of Jeff Bezos. You're heirs of God. I wonder how much he has. Uh, and you're fellow heirs with, with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. In other words, if you finish the race with Jesus in this life, there awaits this moment before the great grand lawyer of all things. And he says, well, it looks like everything is yours. And Paul's like, yeah, you do you realize who you are and what you have? Maybe not. Um, we know... Romans 8, 28, uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So for those he foreknew, uh, that's a word that relates to a, a knowledge of somebody like I know my wife. Not I know about her, I know her. We have a relationship, it's a relational term. And so those he knew beforehand in a relational sense, he also predestined them. I'm going to mark them out and say, uh, I'm going to destine you for this destination. What is that? Well, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also Called. He called you to faith in Jesus. And those whom He called, He also uh, justified. Yes, I came to faith and I trusted Jesus. I make profession of it when I'm being baptized. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What is that? Is that a present tense? Is that a future tense? That's a past tense, right? I'm going to tell you a secret. I've been looking at you guys for the last 40 minutes. Uh, None of you are glorified not a single one, I know some of you, you're really not glorified. (laughs) Why, Why can he say that? Why can he say it's past? It's almost like Paul's saying that this is so sure in God's mind that I can talk about your glorification as it's already taken place. So what do we say to that? What do we say to the fact that no matter what happens in this world, it will work together for your good, eternal good, achieving for you what? God already determined will happen. What do you say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, eh. so he he didn't spare his own son, guys. His own son, he didn't spare his own son, he didn't hold him back, but he gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all? Things, all things that pertain to our future and our life and all the stuff, the money and all the, all the things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, those he's chosen, right? That's what this described. It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus, he's the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. Who are you going to appeal to? Yeah, I got a problem with you, God. I'm going to appeal to this Jesus over here. Oh, he died for you? Stink. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or, or sword? Yeah, those sound familiar to people who live in the present evil age. You know what that's like, right? In fact, sometimes it feels like for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Where are you, God? But no, no. In all these things, in all the hardship, in all the horrible ways the world treats you, the stink eye, all the, you're a fool, all of it, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither there is a language, death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Or, all things are yours. All things, are. listen, when when that knowledge seeps into your heart and your soul, it changes everything. When you realize that every single thing that is happening in your life is there by the providence of a kind God who loves you and is seeking your eternal good and is using that thing, that particular thing, to bring about his, His goals, that are already past tense because he's determined. When you realize that, when you realize that all things are yours, everything changes. If everything's guaranteed to work out for our eternal girl, why why, why, why worry then, right? If we're going to inherit the earth and all in it, why fret over the troubles of life or the specter of death or the scheming of the world or anything that's presently happening or will happen in the future? Because all things... Are whose? Yours. Playing video games with my son just the other day. He's like running in with his guy, and he dies. Responds, I said, Man, if only we could live that way. He said, Oh, yeah, the only reason I do that is because I know I'm going to respond. Hmm. Christian, you do know that you're going to respond, yeah? So perhaps boldness should be a mark of you more than it is, O citizen of the age to come. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollo, Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. And we all said, amen. Lord, thank you for my friends. Thank you for your grace. And I thank you, Father, for this text, particularly, Lord, because it uh, (laughs) reminds us of who we are and what we have, Lord. Sometimes we act like paupers, like poor people, when we've been given so much. We live like like we have nothing, nothing to look forward to, nothing to look around at that you've provided for us, and yet we are just lavished upon. We live in the in the kingdom of God already, and it will be soon, fully completed, and we will be in heavenly bliss, and each moment will be better than the last. Oh, God, we look forward to it. I pray that the knowledge of the age to come would come into our present lives and make us look stupid to everybody else. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.